Hello and welcome to Get Object. This is a podcast about things in games. I'm Rosie. I am joined as always by my co-host Paul. Hello. And today we are talking about language in games. So we will be knee deep in interpretation in just a second. But first some chat. Paul, how are you? What are you playing? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, Um, I've been playing The Last of Us 2, which I have finished in the period between us uh, last speaking. That's a long game. Is it? (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's taken a a lot of commitment to to get it done that quickly. I've been playing a lot. So yeah, uh, the the last time we spoke, I think I said I'd hardly played at all. I've been playing a lot the last um, week or so. Uh, right, because I, I wasn't expecting you to have finished already. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised by that. Well done. Yeah. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll keep it spoiler free because I imagine there's people who who would be interested in, in playing that still. But mm. um, yeah, firstly, the the yeah the the only thing I was aware of that people had been saying before I started it where it was that it was too long. It is yeah. too long. Okay. It, um, it should it should definitely be shorter. Um, yeah. But I do really like it. Um, I think it's it's one of those games that can maybe a, a suffer a bit in both ways because it's like, do you, do you remember we, we we talked about in our um, gore episode that like the last of us like signaled how serious it was because it's like it shows you somebody shotgunning someone in the face and it's like violence and bleakness as like oh this is serious you know like and, it, and it, there's kind of that discourse yes. around the first game as it being like. It's one of those ones that comes up where um, people try to justify video games as art and they kind of latch on to like a game or that happens with The Last of Us a bit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's not really helpful to how you engage with it because I don't think it's like, you know, a high concept piece of, you know, high art or something. Um, right, right, I mean, right. Not, not that that's yeah. important. Like I like genre fiction. I like low culture stuff. But I'm just saying I, I don't think it... It is that, so I think you can, I think you can get a bit of a backlash against it because it's positioned like that mm. uh, from its own mm. fault as, as well. Um, or also that like people can take it, engage with it in a very serious way, or treat it in in some kind of special way when it doesn't deserve that as well. So it's yes. kind of a, a weird one. Um, so yeah, I've 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 read yeah very it's very bleak. I was left. I finished it actually last night. And I was left. I was left feeling very sad for, right. for a while. I couldn't get to sleep. It was like a oh. horrible, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's very bleak and tragic. And um, I've, I mean, I've read some stuff like criticizing some of its storyline beats and the way its characters are drawn. And it's uh-huh. one of those weird things where I kind of agree with the criticisms, but I nonetheless like really. Like the character, I really feel connected with the characters. Like it really, it really just, even though like I can see those criticisms and I kind of agree with them, it just really worked for me. Like, um, I care about the characters and what happens to them. Um, I do think it does some, even though it doesn't necessarily do it enough and doesn't go far enough with it, it does engage with uh, violence. A lot of the stuff around violence is like quite, I think, um, like obvious stuff that uh, like oh imagine if the people you do violence to are also human who oh wow shocker yeah, or like or you know like 
what if violence maybe begets violence and creates <laughs> right. a circle you know yeah. this kind of stuff but it does it does I think at points attempt to engage with the idea of violence in a way that games don't often do in that it does show like a consequence to violence and I don't just mean like you do violence and somebody does something back to you mm. but um in The Last of Us you obviously you're you're quite often going through incredibly traumatic uh situations like the the combat situations and some of the stuff that happens is very very traumatic to the characters and it does have an impact on them right uh, I, I don't want to say too much more but like you know often like people the people do incredible violence in video games and it doesn't really actually have an effect on like who they are they don't have to deal with it afterwards in like a way that you would actually have to deal with that kind of trauma uh in this game they do there is a sense that people are profoundly affected by what they've seen and what they've done in a way that they can't just like forget about or leave behind so i think that's cool um, yeah that's that we did speak about that on the gore episode didn't we the the idea of um violence that actually has impact as something mm. that games kind of struggle with a little bit uh yeah. you know they're good at doing the sprays of blood <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. But, but not not loads of impact beyond that, right? Yeah, oh, that still, sounds interesting. Too much, too much zombie stuff as well. I don't like the zombies. I like yeah, who gives a shit about zombies, yeah. guys? It's not it's not 2010 anymore. Yeah, the bits fighting the 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 human enemies are far more enjoyable. Right. Uh, and yeah, shout! It's uh, I guess also shout out for having one of the few uh, women in games that's absolutely jacked. It's oh, got, nice! <laughs> it's got a, that. That's something that. Uh, that annoys me in games where um and it, obviously it's way more common with female characters that their body shape does not reflect like what they <laughs> like because most most male characters in games are like fairly muscular and yes. like so like when they're climbing around like you know climbing up rocks and stuff and all this it, it doesn't but like if you look at like Lara Croft for example yeah like, she can like do all this climbing and like hang off stuff and like yeah, I, I go climbing and you do see like women who are like, that doesn't mean that they have to be massively jacked, but like if the high level, if they're climbing at a high level, you can see when they're climbing, like the muscles that engaged on their shoulders and stuff like that. And it's, mm. yeah, just weird when, uh, but yeah, The Last of Us 2 has a, has a, has a woman who's uh, completely stacked. So, oh, lovely. Um, <laughs> unusual at least that was one of the main things i enjoy about assassin's creed odyssey uh oh, really? the, the, the the female player character cassandra yeah is uh is is really muffs muscly and buff and it's uh it's just wonderful it just feels great to be running around with some with some muscles <laughs> well, maybe, maybe this would be the way to tempt you into the last of us <laughs> i mean this actually is is like the most tempted i've been yeah hearing that you, you're not like you're not you got any interest in this at all? Not really, or? no. I played um the beginning of the first game and I thought it was like um just uh, a couple of weeks ago or something. I did feel like it was um super uh it seemed very capable and polished. It felt like I was gonna be walking around quite a lot with people explaining plot to me. This is something that happens in Rockstar games as well quite a lot these days, and I'm just sort of starting to find that I have a little bit less patience uh, for that kind of gameplay i don't know i don't think there's much of that well i mean i was as i say i was playing like the opening so yeah. you know so yeah, I was the like, opening is quite yeah. it was like the first half hour 45 minutes i think i got to the first like combat encounter and i was kind of like went back to dark souls 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the first one as well, the the first sort of, I mean, the intro is really striking, but then mm. I think the, the, it's kind of uh, the first couple of hours, like, are okay yeah and then and then it just then it like gets starts getting really good it just gets better and better so it kind of i think there's quite a few people who kind of tapped out like in the first couple of hours but yeah it does get good but anyway yeah that's uh, a lot of last of us chat um so but yeah what, what have you been playing well i have been playing dark souls um i'll say actually first i did finish um metro exodus uh by foray games i thought it was absolutely wonderful the last mm-hmm. part of that game is just this incredibly atmospheric kind of slog through hell. It uh, it is it's really beautiful. I think the way that it paints its world is is lovely. That game, um, and and another apocalypse uh, text, I guess, to to pair with the Last of Us. Mm. Um, I have been thinking like maybe we can do the apocalypse. It's it's a less objecty thing, but you know the apocalypse in games, I guess, would be rich territory to talk about. I mean, we we play loose with our rules. Sometimes we could do that. Exactly. Sound we can, podcast. We can absolutely do that at some point. I mean, maybe it's a good time to do it. Uh, having, <laughs> nice. having just played The Last of Us, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we should get to that soon. Well, anyway, yeah. so yeah, um, congratulations for our games for Metro Exodus. Really beautiful piece of work. I was really impressed all the way through. Um, and then I did, yeah, Dark Souls. Uh, it's a game from 2011 by From Software that I've played. <laughs> several times at yeah. this stage um, is this like the, is there a new version of it or something you yeah. the, the, is that when did that come out it's the remastered it's the remastered remaster, yeah it's the remaster on ps4 it came out in 2018 okay. um i haven't played the first dark souls game since dark souls 2 came out which i didn't bother checking out. i think it was around 2014 2013 so it's been a while Mm. um but i have played it a few times when i played it at first uh it's great i just love it so much i love dark souls um i i walk around that world there was a bit i was walking around an area uh it's the um painted world of ariamis uh for any dark souls fans and i just couldn't stop grinning i just the the aesthetic experience of dark souls is just so wonderful i love the kind of raggedy skeletal warrior heavy fantasy world uh that it presents i just i just find it a very beautiful environment to be in much easier now replaying the first game as well which was quite nice was that i've I've, there were bosses that like literally took me weeks the first time through that i was able to beat on the second try and that was very satisfying and very nice Uh, okay so you've retained some skills and knowledge Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously, like I've played, you know, the the intervening games since since I've played the first one. So, uh, so yes, I am much better now. Um, And um, yeah, just just a wonderful, just absolutely love it. It reminds me, it occurred to me, Dark Souls of Nightmare, the TV show that was on ITV when we were kids. Do you remember Nightmare? Yeah, Yeah, I remember Nightmare, yeah. (laughs) I feel like Dark Souls is a way of getting back to that space because that's probably one of like the first fantasy texts for me. Um, And Nightmare, you know, it was very difficult and it was very mysterious and it also had a kind of skeletal warrior focused kind of um, fantasy vibe that was very enjoyable. Um, I feel it was slightly scary. Yes, it it was scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, and it was like a really odd world. Like it was really, apologies to anyone listening from outside the UK. (laughs) Yeah, we're talking about a TV show that was like where the 
per- the kid who was playing the game had to have a helmet on, so mm. they couldn't see anything? They couldn't right? see anything, yeah, because I think the idea was that they were going to be moving around a space that was being was actually being rendered by computers, so their friends who were watching, who were also advising the kid, they could right, see yeah, that so they kid like, in the yeah. environment, but the, yeah. The, yeah, and tell them, oh yeah, there's a there's like a fountain in front of you or whatever. So um, they like walk forward. Turn, walk forward three and steps. And then, they, I don't know, they would just fall off a ledge or something and then it that was, would be the end of their... <laughs> it was like, it's similar to Dark Souls in that like nobody, like the idea of its difficulty was like a really key part of Nightmare was that, you know, only like three teams ever managed to beat Nightmare um mm. it was great it was really good anyway but um it did make me think about nostalgia and playing games and I was wondering I think we've kind of touched on this before but you don't tend to replay a lot of games do you these uh, days not these days not so much mm. um I replayed Hotline Miami recently oh Just, yeah I had a desire to do that I can't remember why uh, maybe it was around when we did the gore episode or something mm. I don't know mm. um but no, not really. I'd like to. I've been wanting to play Final Fantasy VIII again for a long time, but right. I'm waiting for the. Well, I'm hoping the 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 they're kind of gradually been bringing out the Final Fantasy um, releases through Xbox Games Pass. Right. So I'm yep. kind of hoping that they'll do that, so I don't have to buy it. Um, whether I'll actually play like a fifty hour RPG, I don't know. But yeah. Anyway, yeah, to answer your question, no, I don't normally do that much. It's funny. It's like it's like the main thing I do. It's like I have like five video games that I just cycle Mm. through. (laughs) As people may have noticed as they're listening to this podcast. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, I like it. I mean, I'm like that with um, books and TV and films as well. Like I have a very deep uh, but fairly narrow knowledge (laughs) of all of these kind of storytelling genres. Oh, but haven't you been playing Oberdin as well? Oh shit, yeah, I have actually for the first time. Oberdin by Lucas Pope, brilliant, brilliant game. Um, I'm playing that on uh of the Patreon that we do for our Twin Peaks podcast. Um, and um, it's great. I really, really like it. It's fantastic. What a good game. game. I yeah, know. So good. I'm so again so impressed that like one bloke did this with some voice actors. Like it's just absolutely beautiful piece of work. Really mysterious. Really like interesting like historically interesting like there's loads of information that's like to do with what life on board a ship is and stuff like that in those times um and yeah just absolutely lovely you're doing some anthropology yes i'm having the time of my life i'm I'm really enjoying being an insurance adjuster aboard the oberdin (laughs) yeah good game Okay, um, so we got some feedback. Uh, we got quite a bit to get through, actually, uh, this time around. Yeah, did you want to kick us off, Rosie? Uh, yes, okay, so first bit of feedback we have. It's from wonderful James Wheeler. Um, he wanted to recommend the No Cartridge episode five to anyone who hadn't heard of it, which he says is a very enjoyable discussion of Alan Wake, Deadly Premonition and Twin Peaks. Yeah, because um, obviously we were making those comparisons, I think, in our Towns episode. Right, yeah. well, there we go. Yeah, no, I mean, these are these are the kind of Twin Peaks-focused uh, video games of, of which I've, I think I've mentioned. There's a few of them, um, but Alan Wake and Deadly Premonition, certainly, to a, to a large extent. Um, I have not listened to that No Cartridge episode, James, and I will check it out. And then he also had a thought rattling around in his head about keys. 
The keys all are... the way back. All the way the back. Original. Yeah. All the way back. Is that our first one, Keys? Yeah, that's our first oh one. Oh my yeah. goodness. Okay, wonderful. Okay, so the Keys episode established a now familiar sci-fi fantasy dichotomy with the example of traditional mechanical keys versus key cards as a sign of the genre you're in. It occurred to me that the Resident Evil series has both usually starting with one aesthetic, Haunted Mansion, and shifting to another, Secret High-Tech Lab. The overall setting of the series is contemporary horror, more informed by sci-fi than fantasy, but nonetheless, objects in the game often seem to bridge the two. Another example is the series' health recovery items, see Get Object 7, food. Traditionally, the player heals using medicinal herbs, and in Resident Evil 6, these somehow get converted in the inventory to pills. I guess that's where drugs come in. To be honest, I've forgotten why this was a relevant comment for the drugs episode, but there it is. My vague and incomplete theory that Resident Evil transcends the aesthetic divide between science fiction and fantasy. You're welcome. James, thank you so much. That is exactly the kind of thinking that we need on the case. Because, yeah, I mean, we've been talking about that that sci-fi fantasy aesthetic and where mm. we both fall on either side of it. Um, I'm not hugely familiar with the Resident Evil um, games. I think I've played the first one came out in remastered form not that long ago or it was available for free on playstation plus or something a couple of years ago and i played it then and i found it very scary and good (laughs) yeah uh uh, i had resident evil like on pc like many many years ago when it was too intense for me i couldn't play it oh Uh, yeah of course (laughs) i did i did play i did uh play and finish resident evil 2 at a friend's house so oh, nice. uh, yeah with him basically directing me where to go so right uh, yeah so you had some assistance yeah um so we got yeah so that was uh from that comment was from our patreon we had another one on there from uh eli bergmas who was uh responding to because we we've started a new game club on the patreon because and rose is going to be playing what remains of edith finch oh yeah um, I didn't yeah, mention he... that. I started that as well, of course. That's lots of fun. Oh, you started it, have you? Yeah, okay. that's good. Right. Okay, yeah. we'll, have to, we'll have to save that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Eli was just getting in touch with Destiny. He's his favourite game of all time. Oh so, my goodness, um, Eli. So high praise. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, setting your expectations. Um, okay, we also, there was some stuff on Twitter. Uh, I have to apologise to um, Matt Colt, uh, at Matt Gost on Twitter, who sent us some DMs that I read and then forgot to include in feedback from like previous weeks. So uh, um, Apologies, Matt. Yeah. You, you can't, you're welcome to DM us, listeners, but um, I may forget. So <laughs> probably... Yeah, email or, or just tweet us if you can, and I'm I'll less like to miss it. But uh, I'm by no means banning DMs. You're you're welcome to DM us, but um, at yeah, your own I, peril. I, yeah, um, uh, Matt had one where he was kind of speculating about how they were going to do the Final Fantasy VII cross dressing scene. I mean, the the remakes already come out, so I've left that one too late. But he he also had some spaceships for us. Um, I listened to legendary designers Republic Genius Ian Anderson on the Creative Boom podcast this week talking about designing the branding on the ships in Wipeout, design as world building. It was really interesting. Not sure if they count as they're not spacey, even if they're ships. Um, they can count, I think. I, I think know. so. But then also I did I don't have... know they don't travel through space though, do they? I, I did have more thoughts on ships in general that I wasn't able to kind of fit in quite happily into our spaceships episode so i think we possibly could do naval ships um 
at mm. some point. We'll see. It's a possibility for sure. It's, it's a possibility. Yeah, uh, Matt also mentioned Elite. Uh, he said, although the wireframe graphics are pretty rudimentary, it's one of the only games I've played where the ship was more than just a platform for lasers and missile missiles. Each ship had strengths and limits, the size of the cargo hold, the speed, maneuverability and range, the shields and weaponry. It made the ship meaningful in a way that is completely absent in other spaceships games I've played, uh, for example, Star Fox. Uh, the other game that springs to mind is XCOM Enemy Unknown, where exploring crashed alien spacecraft was a genuinely stressful, scary experience. Yeah, XCOM, uh, I believe he's talking about the original XCOM from like mm-hmm. 1990, I don't know, six or something like that. Right. I'm just making a guess there, but <laughs> it's around that time. Yeah, the that was horrifically scary, terrifying music. Uh when you had to go and visit those um, crash sites, I don't know if you played that one back in the day. No, no, I've played. I've played the more recent ones. Um, was it? Were they still like turn-based co- um, combat and stuff? Were you like having to explore in turns? Yes, it was still Ooh, yes, okay, same thing. Yeah. Turn-based combat, uh, quite similar in a, in a sense, but um, yeah, they were. For some reason, I just I remember finding it incredibly scary uh, at the time. The same mm. as Matt, so yeah. And we also have another comment from uh, Steve's. Hello, Steve's. Um, Steve says, hello, hello. <laughs> Just remembered something about swords. The Monkey Island game subverts old fights by turning them into rhyming couplet insult matches. They do indeed. I think mm. um, such a famous... Um, yeah. Such a famous kind of uh, passage in games. Really funny that we neither of us... Uh, it didn't occur to us. Uh, but that's, of course, what we depend on you guys for. Uh, very fun uh, insult competition between Guybrush and pirates. And again, mm-hmm. like, comes up a couple of different places, doesn't it? The um, the sword fight insults in Monkey Island. Yeah. Th- they brought it back in the fourth one mm. that nobody played. That nobody, I certainly didn't, no. <laughs> the 3D uh, one. Right. Um, he also says somewhere between food and drugs you can mix up different coloured drinks to make your spit thicker for a spitting contest Uh, and also in Monkey Island the towns on each island do a really rare thing of being distinct while remaining one ecosystem i.e. they're all in the Caribbean to be honest I get frustrated at the trope of making a different microclimate for different areas and very exaggerated architecture that borrows from the real world to signpost it because it feels heavy handed uh yeah the towns in monkey island i do remember being very distinct very lovely um but all of a piece in some way yeah um i mean i i think i said in the episode i enjoyed when the like jrpgs kind of go crazy and make every town like completely like basically uh, what he's talking yes, about yes yes, um, yes but but yeah he's um for sure right that you know there are there are other games where you you want them to have a kind of consistent aesthetic where the world feels of a you know one place um i think we could probably mention something like our favorites um arcane where Mm. dunwall and karnaka are different cultures and different styles but they they don't feel like you're in a complete they feel of one world don't they they don't feel like completely separate absolutely they do yeah 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 um that's a really nice example actually yeah uh okay also from twitter uh, alex uh some uh Samoylov. uh sorry if i'm pronouncing your name wrong um this one is super late we don't mind late uh 
late uh, comments or feedback you can send them as late as you like um, but I was just working on something that reminded me of it and felt compelled to share because it's amazing one of my favorites if not if not the favorite maps in all the video games has to be the dream map from cultist simulator it's a stunning and conceptually cool piece of visual art but the way that it is first revealed to the player and integrated into both the gameplay and the mythos of the game, it takes it to a whole other level. The first time you see it, you feel like you've lifted a cosmic veil. Oh, wow. Um, uh, have you played Cultist Simulator? No. No, I haven't either. I looked up the map. It looks like it's kind of a map of, like, concepts or, like... Uh, I guess, like, you need to have different levels and cults and stuff. Mm. I think it's somehow related to that. But, yeah, it's a d- definitely a different... Uh, take on the map and um, certainly might be a game worth playing to pick up some tips given that we suggested uh, a listener should start a cult in our last episode so. absolutely yeah guys actually that's a bit of homework for you isn't it if you are working on as I'm sure you all are on your get object cult um, yeah. mood boards uh, yeah. perhaps, <laughs> perhaps head on over to Cultist Simulator for some inspiration thank you very much Alex uh, also, Christopher Bayliss, uh, another person that's asked us about getting the podcast on Google Podcasts. Again, I just don't know how to do this. How do you I don't do it, guys? How Google Podcasts works. If somebody understands this and knows what I can do, uh, please get in touch and I'll do it. But um, yeah, sorry, Christopher. I just don't know what to do. It's so weird. I remember from like, yeah, from Mother Podcast of like me and Bob were making the shadow trap and at some point it just appeared on Google Podcast. We have no idea what yeah, happened. Same, make... same with Utopian Horizons. Yeah. It just appeared. Um, so, right. But ours hasn't for some reason. Witchcraft. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then a uh, final comment from Jeff Spender. Hey, Jeff Spender. Um, it is, he says, all of this Morrowind chat, thank you for noticing, makes me wonder if Rosie's played the Tamriel Rebuilt mod, which massively increases the size of the game with new cities, NPCs, quests, etc. I asked because I contributed a fair bit of writing to the project and I think she'd dig it. Uh, Jeff, that was remarkably prescient of you. I have not played it, um, but I do know all about the Tamriel Rebuilt mod. There's a blog that talks about the Tamriel Rebuilt mod, a lot of which I've read. Um, I just haven't replayed Morrowind uh, since it came out. But as soon as I do, I will, because it is the coolest project. Um, Basically, they took... When you look at like the area that Morrowind was originally going to be set on, it is much bigger than um, than what we ended up with in Elder Scrolls Three. Um, it, it it takes in like part of the continent. It's not just all set on this island, and um, and Tamriel rebuilt kind of fleshes out that area that that you know that is there on the map, but not there in the game itself. And mm. it, it's a lovely, really cool undertaking. Um, shout out to Jeff for writing on it. That's fantastic. Uh, I will certainly get round to it at some point and uh, very much looking forward to. Cool. All right. Today we are talking about language. Uh, Paul, how do, how do you feel about language words? Do you like them? Uh, do, they are very useful, aren't they? Just <laughs> they uh, are. in terms of getting things done, learning things. Um <laughs> You, how many languages have you got in your locker? You can speak some French, can't you, a bit? Uh, I can speak a, a very small amount of French. Um, enough to get by on holiday, for instance. Um, okay. But certainly not enough. Uh, just in general, I would love to be able to speak more French. Uh, a beautiful mm. language, and I do like going to France. I assume you can speak German? 
mostly yeah uh yeah my german's okay i can speak okay german uh not grammatically correct all the time yeah uh, necessarily and uh there's plenty of words i don't know but i just um find other ways of explaining things most of the time right Uh, yeah but of course there's many different ways we can think about language as we'll uh as we'll get to i think yeah i mean language is i for me it's like a I find language super, super interesting. Um, my um, field when I was doing research in anthropology was anthropology of religion. I think I've probably mentioned that a few times, but specifically religious language, um, which okay. is a huge field um, in, in the discipline. I worked with evangelical Christians who have, where basically like most of the religious practice is language practice. It's prayer, it's reading the Bible, it's listening to preaching, mm. it's telling people about your faith. You know, so so language is like right at the heart of, of religious experience. And I think the um, the point I would like to make going in with language is that language always kind of is a way in which people create virtual worlds, even before we get anywhere near mm. video games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like differences and distinctions, social distinctions, between class categories, gender categories, um, age categories, uh, race and ethnicity, nationality, all of these things w- will be marked at the site of language kind of extensively. Mm. So it's a way that you can sort of see the composition of, of a society. Of such, you know, I mean, we've, we've talked about that with respect to food. We've talked about that with respect to maps. Uh, mm. But language is perhaps even more essential. Um, A nice example I had of um, language creating virtual worlds is if you think about the way in which language figures within religion as a way of experiencing a particular character of God, a particular picture or image of the supernatural being that is relevant within your specific religion. So within Christianity, uh, if you listen to prayer and the way in which people pray, it's very kind of humble. It's like... God, we would ask that you give your blessings to, you know, um, Jenny, help her with her, uh, if it yeah. is your will, help her with her business, you know, and it's... If it's, you're not too busy. If you're not too busy. No, but it's exactly that. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's really speaking in a way that is avoiding sounding like you are making demands yeah, yeah, yeah. of the Lord of reality, because yeah. that would be inappropriate, obviously. And if you compare that to the way in which we, we know within kind of um, another supernatural being within the Christian pantheon is the devil. And, and the idea we have about communication with the devil is that you can do deals with the devil, now, you do deals with someone who is on your level, who is of a similar status to you. you bar- those, that's the kind of person you bargain with. Um, mm. You would never try and bargain with God. And so um, within the Christian framework, so, so within the Christian framework, even at the level of, of language practice, you see very distinctly these specific characters, specific ideas being kind of fleshed out and made available to experience simply from the way that we we talk you know the 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 devil is somehow more of a nature with with people more on the same kind of level of humanity and and god is radically different much much higher and uh you know a, a very strong all encompassing kind of authority uh and it's right there at the level of language so yes that's the an example i guess of language creating a sort of virtual world nice mm. cool well, um, I mean, speaking of languages creating virtual worlds, yeah. uh, sorry to get meta so early, but games are, of course, written in languages, various right. programming languages, 
uh, I don't, I was trying to think of some languages then and my mind's gone blank, but whatever, you know, programming languages exist, everybody. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> We're they're, named they're kind of, Not yeah, for- they're kind of fundamental to the structure of it, but, but the, yeah, the language is obscured in a way. So like, obviously literature is written in a language, but you read the language, like video games are written in a language that's then hidden from like your experience of it. You don't normally see the the code that's written that kind of backs it all up. That's very true, yeah. Um, I also wanted to mention like a different kind of language, which is um, game literacy, by which I'm talking about your ability to kind of read the way that games are talking to you so like learning the language of games um in terms of what they're expecting from us what they're telling us to do what we can do what we can't do mm-hmm. uh, i mean lo- a lot of this ties in with just like good design in terms of like being able to tell the player in a not like obvious way like what they should be doing and what what is possible and what's not and so on and so forth but if you i think if you watch somebody who has no concept of like games has not played a game before play a game you really see it on a different level like the, the kind even if a game's really well designed like the kind of things that you just know are possible and are yeah. not possible and how you're supposed to respond to a certain situation and like how to know where what's the right way to go and mm. stuff like this which mm. can all be mitigated with good design but you do yeah, once you see someone doing that, you'll realise like how much of a literacy you've built up in like how games work uh, and what what they're what they're saying to us, even if not explicitly. Mm. Um, so that's a yeah a, a way a different way of thinking of of language. Um, and I guess one final thing on that is just uh, I've heard people before explicitly talk about games through verbs like the idea that games are fundally fundamentally defined by the verbs that they give us to use so if they give us shoot run jump like those are the verbs that we're able to play with in the games that defines the kind of experience if a game gives you if the only verb a game gives you is walk and talk as in, you know, you can walk around the space and you can talk to characters, then obviously that defines the kind of experience that you can have. So, yeah, I've seen a few people talk about games in this way, like just what verbs do you have? And it's, yeah, it works as an interesting way, I guess, of thinking about games. Uh, that actually does yeah i can see that as a kind of sensible sort of taxonomy um and you do mm. have ideas of like walking simulators and stuff like that like that that is what you do uh in this in this genre of game um and also didn't mario used to be called jump man yes (laughs) there we go (laughs) that's what he does guys that's what he does yeah Okay, so another example I had of um, ideas that come up when we're thinking about language in uh, games was I just wanted to talk about scripts, really, because um, I enjoy fiction, I think particularly for its written capacity or its its, its written features a lot of the time. Um, and obviously, like, writing in games is 
sometimes you'll see like, oh, it's not just good writing for games. It's good. It's good writing, you know, and that's mm. something that comes up when a game is like considered to be particularly well written because it's it's expected that the standards of writing are not that high within video games or the actual yeah. the actual dialogue, for instance, that you're listening yeah. to. Um, certainly there are examples of studios that I think of as producing good kind of solid often sort of genre writing. I think Rockstar are an example um, that, you know, it's, it's kind of workmanlike. It gets the job done, their scripts. Uh, Remedy, I think, are really good. I, I really like the writing on um, Control particularly. Yeah, I, me too. Yeah, I, yeah. Thought, I thought that was like really quite striking. Um, but it does occur to me that there is a kind of, there's quite an interesting lack of poetry, or at least I couldn't think of many examples of a video game that use language in uh in a kind of aesthetic way as something that's not meant to just communicate information or character you know um Mm. notes but is something to be enjoyed in itself there were a couple of examples that did come to mind though um one of which was sunless sea have you ever played sunless sea a little bit but not really it's kind of, I mean, I've played a little bit as well. It's its mm. its a, a navigation, I guess, simulator, a, mainly a sort of storytelling um, sort of box uh, that is about uh, navigating through a sunless sea um, in a world very much inspired by the fiction of H.P. Lovecraft. Mm. And I think in order to do that, what you have to do is you have to use language in a more aesthetic way. Um, uh, because Lo- Lovecraft is particularly distinguished by incredibly sort of um, flowery, sort of overblown language. Um, his his writing, I find quite, um, I find that kind of uh, prose kind of quite enjoyable, but it, it's it's quite dense, and I think a lot of people find it a real turn off, and that's that's kind of fair enough. Um, so yes, yeah, Undersea is written in that very kind of mannered way, um, and another example that I thought of was child of light which came mm. out in 2013 by ubisoft have you have you played child of light yeah uh, i liked that game yeah. i liked it as well so that's like a um an rpg where you are playing a young princess who has been beset by a curse i believe and um the entire script of all of the all of the dialogue and all of the um, narration that you get within the game is written in iambic pentameter, uh, which is like how Shakespeare writes. <laughs> it's okay. like da 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 da. <laughs> glad you, cl- <laughs> yeah. glad you clarified because I didn't know what that meant. So. Yeah, it's like it's a regular sort of rhythm where every other syllable is stressed, basically. So the opening line is, um, "Child, tuck yourself in bed and let me tell a story." of Lemuria, a long-lost kingdom, and a girl born for glory. It's the okay. whole game is written like that. I find it a bit much. I did start to find it a little bit wearing. Yeah. <laughs> the rhyming. I, I seem to remember there was one or, time, one or two times where it's like, they had to communicate this bit of story and they had to find a rhyme for it. And you can see it's a bit clumsy. It's really clumsy uh, at times, yes. Um, but um, I did read an interview with uh, writer Jeffrey Yahalem who said he wanted to make the text feel nostalgic, like an old picture book. And that's kind of what they were going for. And I do think that's like, it's a lovely ambition. And, and particularly within, as you say, like within video games where I think a lot of the, a lot of the writing it's just quite conventional. A lot of the times, you know, that there is this kind of lack of something more 
poetic or something like that. I think we were talking about games as conventional last time, weren't we, when we were talking about drugs. Um, mm. But uh, to, an attempt to to move language in a more artistic way, I did quite enjoy. Uh, yeah. So yeah, so shout out to them. Yeah. I think maybe a few people would shout out uh, Disco Elysium for that ah, as well. At right. least uh, trying, uh, making an attempt in that direction. I know some people weren't as big a fan of it, but it's certainly one of those ones where, like you said, people will say, oh, this is good writing, not just... Again, people have such an anxiety about how seriously games are treated that they have to... Yeah, like pull it out of games always to say that it's serious. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Um, yeah, that's another one. Um, I mean, another a genre that's got a lot of uh, dialogue and, and uh, scripting in it is, of course, uh, adventure games, like point and click games. Yeah. Um, I was thinking of it in a more like literal way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was thinking of, of the era where you used... Uh, language to interact with the environment in terms of like the literal words so day of the tentacle and uh monkey island and all these games um the sierra games i think as well maybe mm-hmm. uh you have um pick up open close walk and mm. you have to click on these words and use them to yeah to interact with things um i think uh one of the things i think i've said this before like i really liked the, when I discovered that adventure games were a thing, I was like really kind of <laughs> uh, kind of bowled over by them. I was like, "Wow, I've discovered something amazing!" Because it was a genre that's that wasn't about any kind of threat, and yeah. there's no like you're not going to die, and there's no like requirement to perform some kind of action or something like that. It's about thinking about things and working through things. Um, and I think working with words and like language gives it an air of being a more thoughtful genre, if you see what I mean. Like you using and playing with words makes it feel like something different. I mean, I have to say, to an extent, these this way of interacting with it is kind of meaningless because it's just a UI thing. And yes. a lot of those, a lot of it was actually quite frustrating because you would sometimes not solve a puzzle because you used. I don't know, you use the word use instead of pick up or vice versa. Yeah, use instead of push or something like that. Yeah, Yeah. and then you thought, oh, that's wrong. And then you spent two hours trying to find what you're supposed to be doing. And Mm. really, you had had solved the puzzle. You knew what to do. You just used the wrong word. And obviously, these all ended up getting collapsed down into just clicking on things. Um, (laughs) So it was kind of like a, yeah, uh, it's just a surface, really. But it was just one of the examples that, that came to came to my mind Mm. another area we could talk about uh is one where we i mean we've both been playing a game uh that deals with this you've finished it i need to return to it now i've done with the last of us two uh this game's about translation so um heaven's vault is one we've uh both been enjoying so this is a game where you play a I don't know, what is she? She's an archaeologist. She's an archaeologist. who, And you travel around to different uh, archaeological sites. You find artifacts or um, pieces of text. And it comes up in this kind of... These symbols that represent the language. And then you have to guess effectively what what each um, symbol represents, what word it represents. 
and you gradually will get words locked in so you start to understand more and more and you kind of you said this uh, in a previous episode you start to get a feel sometimes for like what the symbols mean because because related words use a combination of symbols but you can kind of work out that for example all the like the languages around like holiness and emperor and these kind of things use uh like similar symbols so you kind of get a feel for it which is very as you said is very cool um feeling to like get a sense of like looking at the symbols and just be like oh i think this is i'm in i'm getting an intuition that this is in this direction because of these symbols as yeah something very satisfying about as a gameplay mechanic you translating um something uh successfully feels very very satisfying yeah it's almost like it feels like the real joy of it with heaven's vault for me was it feels like it's something that's taking place not necessarily on the screen but in in you like you are getting better you are developing as you as you play this character who is an expert she's an expert in her field you are developing this expertise this competence as as something that you are carrying around with you and bringing to the different you know when you open up a new area on the game bringing it with you and that's um it's it's really lovely there was a really atmospheric bit i remember when i was um i just got to this new you you sort of travel around different islands essentially and I just got this new island and it was really beautiful and there's this lovely looking building in the distance you're like oh this is nice I wonder what I'm going to find here and one of the first things you come across is an engraving and if you have already sort of translated enough by that point and know the glyphs you can read the engraving and it says something like I, I wasn't quite sure what it was saying but I knew it was something like house of dead or dead live here, or or, mm. or something along those lines, and it's just the the way that suddenly cast the entire situation in which I was in in a, in a completely different light, and that mm. you know I knew that because I I had gained this level of competence with the language at that stage. Uh, it's just wonderful. What a fantastic experience! I I've never played anything like it. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, and and it um, ties back to what you were saying about language as kind of like a foundation for all this stuff because. Um, so it's obviously like in one sense it's just like a puzzle mechanic Mm. that you match the symbols with the words or whatever but you're also revealing like a story of what happens you're also coming into contact with a a conceptual framework for viewing the world in that you're you're understanding how these different cultures uh, worked and like what their um, relationship to the world was so I guess you can say this mechanic kind of brings you into contact with that idea that when you're learning a language, you're not just like, it's not just about like speaking in a way it gives you access to kind of a new world Mm. because you, because it's like the foundation for the culture and the concepts uh, of, um, yeah, of a culture, Uh, using culture twice. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, it's a nice way of coming into contact with that idea. I think. Yeah. Um, so, and uh, yeah, the, the game does this. It's linking the language to the objects, to the architectural sites, to the culture. Uh, yeah, it's very cool. Um, not the only game that translation appears in. I, again, asked our friends in the No Cartridge and the Range Touch discords for suggestions. Um, a few people, including Chiron and BFWFB, mentioned Final Fantasy X from 2001 uh this is from bw bfwfb 
Uh, I've always thought it was cool how in Final Fantasy X you can learn the Albed language. You're not expected to pick up clues and decipher. You get items that slowly reveal it to you letter by letter in a way no human actually learns language. Right. So yeah, not not really. Uh, not as sophisticated uh, or as satisfying as, as Heaven's Vault. But uh, having a language that you don't understand is quite rare in games for reasons I think I might return to later. So it's, it's, it's just a bit different that there's like a culture in the world with a language that you have to take some time to get to understand. Um, no Man's Sky is another one that has translation in it. Uh, I believe you've played more of this than I have. Yes. Uh, you're right, so you'll be familiar with this. But this is from uh, Codelli, who said, Across my 200-ish hours of No Man's Sky, most of my time was spent collecting every single word from every space station I came to, then going down to planets and scanning for alien sites to give me more words. It seems like a kind of terrible mechanic, but once you've obtained like the top 1,000 frequency list for each faction's language, and suddenly you start being able to pass what they're... to pass what they're saying, but with gaps in detail and nuance, it becomes so damn cool. And I think, in spite of itself, it's one of the best mechanical implementations of multiple languages across video games. Uh, don't know if that chimes with, with your experience. I have not played... I've, I've played a lot of No Man's Sky, but not enough to get that much of the language. And it wasn't something okay. I was like particularly focused on because I think you have to ask people for bits of their language as well. Um, although you do kind of pick it up as you go along. Um so I, I had not yet got to that stage, um, okay. even despite having played the game for many, many, many hours uh, where it starts to come together. It's, it, no Man's Sky is just, it has so much in it. It's so vast, um, which I yeah. think is, is part of the problem um, that it kind of experiences in terms of like, it's a lot to kind of get stuck into but I was really looking forward to the stage where the language would start to come together and um and yeah it's fantastic that um they got to it I believe it I don't know I believe it kind of leaves uh it allows space for kind of uh misunderstandings and stuff to happen in conversations maybe as well because you don't understand and you have to respond so that's a kind of interesting take on on language as well like having these yeah uh misunderstandings arise from not like bad intentions but just kind of yeah kind of a, a clash of of uh yeah understanding well i guess so i mean the thing cool. is with no man's sky is it leaves so much distance um within itself you know the idea of vastness is is so important to the the whole project and the idea of that game um and so i guess there's something very atmospherically coherent with the idea that you can run into these aliens and you can pick up bits and pieces but you'll never like fully uh Mm. be able to breach that gap yeah yeah (laughs) um one more in translation um Maybe a game you would enjoy, considering it's basically again going to archaeological sites and finding stuff and and uh, decoding what's going on. But uh, the Outer Wilds, oh yeah, uh, one of my favourite games from the last few years uh, for sure. You have a uh, you get given a, a recently uh, a new piece of tech like a translator mm. um, and basically there's these sites left by a, an alien race called the Naomi who have disappeared for reasons unknown but their technology and uh, stuff is yeah they're, um, some of the old sites they built is left in your solar system yep, classic you move. travel around 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> disappear, leave all the advanced tech everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you, they, they've written like they've written stuff like on walls and uh, all this kind of thing. So you get this translator, which you can finally use to scan the language, and you get yeah. Um, in the, and it's again. They're having conversations that you lack a context for sometimes. Mm. So even though you can understand the words, you still can't understand necessarily what they're talking about. Uh, and it's a, it's a, so it's, it's again, this shows you that like language is not just about like literally like this word mean this word means this word in my language. That's not enough. Uh, you need like the more of a context to really understand it. So that shows that very nicely, and it's again very satisfying to gradually collect this context so that you start to understand what's going on, uh, what they're talking about. Um, Source Force had a nice detail to add to this. Um, they said, one of the neat things the game does is translate idioms literally, so they sound weird. So being soft is translated as being gel- gelatinous. Pulling my leg is translated as pulling at my limb. So yeah, that's just a nice... Um, because that happens a lot where people people always find uh, people always find it very funny. You know, people is that thing where they translate like Chinese literally and mm. like laugh. And it's like, yeah, but that's not really how translation works. Yes, like, that's you, you not can't really it. translate things literally. That's not they're not saying that. Uh, yeah. So that was a nice detail. There's a character in Control, the uh, the janitor Artie, who has these lovely um, Finnish idioms, I guess, uh, that right. he comes out with, but just says them in English and it just sounds very, very odd. I can't think of any examples. I should have written them down. Um, but yeah, it's a really nice kind of fun sort of little blessing on the script every time he comes out with one of these things. It just sounds bizarre. That happened when uh, uh, Jürgen Klopp, the... German football manager right. first came to England and in his press conferences he was using German idioms that he had translated literally oh, into nice. much to my wife's amusement who really enjoyed seeing him pull these things out to the amusement of the press who had no idea what he was talking about. Fantastic. So for example, I think uh, everything has an end but a sausage has two <laughs> is one of them. I don't know. I can't remember what that means. Uh, you don't need to know what that means. That's no. just fantastic. <laughs> yeah. While we're uh, taking a, a slight um, turn here, but on, on a similar theme, there are a lot of games that have uh, conceptual languages, uh, I guess you would call them. So these are, again, games where language is a, is a puzzle of kinds, mm-hmm. but they might be developed via um, symbols. Uh, obviously, human beings have a tendency, a built-in tendency to recognise patterns. Yep. So this is something that we can just do just because of, of the way that human brains work. And again, like some of the games we've talked about, I find... I think that a lot of the games that do this really, really satisfying. There's a sense in which they, because they're using a more conceptual thing, that they're in a way skipping language. Uh, you could say, or like, like you know, uh, like spoken languages, because they're they're appealing to something that is universal. Like, because um, they're using like symbols or concept. It doesn't matter what. Uh, so, for example. The Witness is one of the games that I would use an example of yeah. this, which is uh, a game which has sounds very boring whenever you describe it. Uh, a series of line puzzles mm. where you like line mazes where you draw a line from an entrance to an exit on a puzzle. 
but this is complicated as symbols are added that have meanings and you can only work out these what these meanings are for experimentation. It doesn't matter if you're English or Russian or French or uh, you speak Portuguese or whatever. These symbols just work on like like a, an innate level that means it's like everybody can yeah understand them universally. So that that's cool. As I say, they're just yeah this this kind of moment of like understanding the meaning of something is right. so rewarding. And the the witness is a game. Uh, I always describe it as being full of epiphanies. Like Lovely. you, you have these symbols that you see all over the place, and they just mean nothing to you. In your, and then suddenly you just have a moment where it clicks, and everything becomes clear, and you know what it means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that happens all the time in the witness, and uh, I find it really, really compelling. The uh, other famous game for this would be Fez. Right. Um, did you play Fez? I've played about five minutes of Fez, but I don't think enough to get the uh, get the joy of it. Okay. So Fez on one level. So it's a, a 2D platformer where you can kind of rotate the world in four dimensions, mm. if that makes sense. Um, so it appears at first to just be a game about navigating these four dimensions to platform around and collect cubes. But people then discover there's almost like a second game in there which is again a game of translations there's all these symbols in the game um that you can come across uh for example there's like the uh, tetrominoes they're called like the tetris shapes okay which uh relate to directions uh, you can eventually discover so that you know up down left right and then you can use um you can decode these and use these to find like extra things there were all these puzzles that were kind of hidden as like a second game um people then so a a lot of this was really well hidden so this took place over a long some of the stuff was quite obvious uh like you would see at first there's just symbols in the background you don't think much of it and you gradually kind of think hang on i'm seeing this in a lot of places and you kind of then you might you might decode some of it, but but then there was there's also an alphabet. There's a system of numbers, um, and there are a lot of secrets that took people. I'm not sure how long, but it took people a long time to discover. And a lot of this was done on message boards of people spent like uh, I, I it may have even be year. I think like the last thing took people like years to find right. because it was so well um, hidden. So yeah, that was a nice example of people had to kind of come together and like bring like information that they gathered uh to try and work this out um and yeah uh, a very cool example Romination had something to say on this one uh the language is all over and has a cool design and when you figure out how to translate it you realize that it's not all just back for background info it's really cool so yeah um i, I kind of accidentally uh jumped ahead of you there Romination. i was saying <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i really enjoyed that aspect of yeah realizing suddenly that there's something more there than what you initially thought i think that sounds really cool yeah uh, that that makes me very tempted to go back into fez um and it's really nice that you're talking about decoding and these kind of habits of decoding particularly when it comes to people comparing notes online and stuff like that because it does make me think of an issue that I have noticed that I thought might be worth going into talking about language and games, which I think happens across all fiction. And 
it's to do with it's not to do with what is actually taking place within the game themselves but the way in which we talk about them i feel like mm-hmm. these habits of decoding and the idea that there's always a sort of hidden meaning uh that we can approach text as codes as texts right even the the word i'm using there uh suggests something that can be interpreted like a language and i think there are good things about that and bad things about that um i'll give an example of the kind of thing i mean um i obviously have a uh, a podcast about Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks is mm-hmm. uh, a TV show that is famously quite obscure, that uses a lot of um, dream um, imagery that is mm. is not straightforward to watch. Um, mm. And so what you tend to see a lot of online is a lot of discussion trying to decode Twin Peaks, treating it as if it is a language, treating it as though it is a text that has a kind of meaning within it, hidden within it, and and mm. and the the goal is to get it out. Um, I expressed this in conversation actually on Twitter with friend of the podcast Sean. Shout out to Sean. Uh, well, I said I, I said lots of people seem to think that what artists do is write down a paragraph, then turn that paragraph into a film, a painting, or a song you could put a video game and the goal of art appreciation is to get the paragraph back out of it Mm. now that comment that was like my most successful tweet ever nobody gives a shit what i say on twitter quite right too um but that that got quite a lot of retweets and likes and i I think it must have well yeah i was pleased with it i i should i should confess i actually stole that point wholeheartedly from don't confess from my boyfriend (laughs) it's fine we're we're a continuous kind of you know borg entity it's it's absolutely fine i can still i can steal his points he can steal mine um but it was something that dave had noticed basically um uh, with respect to uh, criticism of art, I think, uh, like uh, visual art. I feel like this is... Like, if you want to see this, go and when you finish a game, start Googling... So, for example, I've just finished The Last of Us. Yeah. The Last of Us 2 ending, yes. and then you'll see come up in suggestions, explain. Explain. Uh, and this is... And yeah, and there's all these things like, yeah, what what literally... You can find that for any game. Mm. Uh I, uh, I think I, I, I sometimes have a tendency to want to do this to like know what the meaning is. Like I do think like I think you've said you're kind of suggesting this anyway. There is something valuable in trying to like decode meanings from something, but it's when you kind of I've done this with video games as well. Like when I've been like unsure about some points, um, and what you normally find, I think you will be unsatisfied is not quite the right word but you read these story ending explain things and quite often realize that they explain nothing yes and you realize that that it's not it's worthwhile like trying to do these things and like work out how you can make interpretations but it can't like be you can't write down this is what the ending means or whatever it doesn't work like that i feel a lot of this stuff is maybe tied into like the prevalence of fan culture now like the way um you know, like you put stuff in trailers that fans can like decode and like find like this hint at this, and then they yeah, they have this this very um, t- fan culture has very kind of toxic desire to like own the meaning of things, yes, and like what is the correct one. Uh, so I think it's uh, it can it kind of 
it's not the same thing, but it relates to a very unhealthy tendency, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm glad you pointed out that it, it, it's, it's the kind of thing you like to do. I, I like to do this as well. This is why I say that it's, um, it's, it's not a point that I would have originated myself. Because I am very much the kind of person who wants to kind of decode things and stuff like that. Yeah, but that's that's like I mean that's in a sense that's why I like listening to your Twin Peaks right. podcast. I mean you are trying to decode it in a sense, but then you don't end up going like this reading is invalid. And yes, this, yes, yes. Well, and this is the correct. You don't assume that you're. You don't assume that there is a correct like. You can present different theories, and there is a correct one. There may not be, like, or even that a that's, correct one, or even that that approaching it is that is a like the most relevant or important way of even approaching a text. Like, what is the secret paragraph here? Can I find mm. it? You know, that's not. I think the reason why we find when we look up, you know, the Sopranos ending explained, and we find it ultimately that article to be unsatisfying in some way, is because what yeah. we're looking to do is extend our experience of the show. We're or, yeah, or, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. and, that, and yeah. that 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 explanation does not do it. It, it does not bring us into no. what we loved about it so much. Um, I, I looked for an example of, um, of a games person doing this kind of thing, talking about his, his work in this kind of way, um, and uh, was, was hugely gratified to find that Ken Levine, I, I kind of guessed, um, who is uh, <laughs> the uh, creator behind uh, Bioshock, um, he, he talks about his work in this kind of way. I, I would guess that sort of David Cage maybe does as well. There are, there are a few people who I would suspect of this kind of um, interpretive oh God, framework. Yeah. I would imagine he 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 thinks there's paragraphs hidden away in his work as well. Um, but uh, Ken Levine said in an interview with Anthony Ha, what I was trying to do with Bioshock was to say, okay, so we're, we're going to mm-hmm. get the paragraph now. Okay, well, in Atlas Shrugged, there's a utopia where Ayn Rand, who made the philosophy, made all the rules and all the characters were under her control. What if things weren't under everyone's control? And I think that's the problem with utopias. We bring ourselves to it. We think we're leaving our problems behind but we are the problem. So leaving aside the merit of, of what um, Ken Levine is saying there and, and whether or not, you know, that's whether we think that's like the ultimate meaning of Bioshock, I'm not sure that that paragraph is even the most meaningful way we experience or anyone really experiences that game. I think the real beauty of that game, and I do think it's a wonderful game, is... It's in that, it's in that somehow, it's in that aesthetic of like the failed utopia and stuff, but it's also in the, just the wonder of being in this environment. The thing people talk about when they talk about Bioshock is how much they enjoy exploring Rapture and, you know, the kind of deep undersea, the, 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 the terror of lurking through these kind of beautiful environments, but there's monsters around the corner, the whales just swimming by the windows mm. as you're exploring, you know, there's, there's, mm. there's so much going on there that you can't aren't really that isn't really about language and it isn't really about statements or or anything like that you know there's there's so many different ways to explore it yeah i I think that's one of the least interesting interpretations you could get out of bioshock actually so uh actually familiar with this quote because i Mm -hmm. used it when i did uh utopian horizons episode on bioshock infinite um I know you said leaving behind the, the kind of okay, funny judgment statement. But we can get he, to it if you like. I find <laughs> the, I mean, it's deeply, uh, I think it reveals a lot about his politics. Right. If he, if he's, the, the idea, 
we think we're leaving our problems behind uh but we are the problem it's mm. a deeply uh cynical view of like humanity and human nature and it reveals a lot about the way he sees the world which is basically yeah I mean, when you, if you get down to what that means, that means, yeah, like bad things happen in the world, but what are you going to do? That's just the way it is. Uh, that's ultimately like what that kind of, where that kind of thinking leaves you. Um, it's actually a deeply ideological statement. It's, it's, a, it's really yeah, specifically, yeah, yeah. it's a very specifically Western way of looking at the world, that, that kind of very deep cynicism and like this like really poor kind of self-esteem view of the world where, where human beings are ultimately, you know, all out to get each other and stuff like that. Um, the, the anthropologist Marshall Salins has written extensively on this and I would, I would recommend his work. Mm. This is why I said the I've said in that episode I think the 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 villain of the Bioshock series is ideology, right? Uh, okay. As in like the the idea that someone could believe in something, um, because uh, if you yeah if you I read Bioshock very differently in the time, but if you read the two games like together, you see what 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 he's actually very scared of is the idea that someone might have an idea for a different world. And right. he finds that inherently, you know, that, that, that idea that, um, that kind of very centrist idea that anything that deviates from the status quo is inherently dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, it, you know, you must be like a zealot and you're inevitably going to, you're inevitably going down the road to the gulag or, or whatever. Yeah. I think this is really what he, what he thinks ultimately. And that's, you can sort of see a bit of that in that, in that, uh, statement i think but anyway so well there we go so if he thinks he's he's smuggling that paragraph maybe it's one we don't particularly want anyway and we should just (laughs) enjoy the art deco under underwater fantasia (laughs) that is rapture which which is an enjoyable environment to be in on its own kind of aesthetic merits uh leaving aside you know the need to try and decode meaning out of it yeah so i mean we've we've talked a little bit about the relationship between language and culture uh this is a point i kind of started making earlier but didn't finish so i'll I'll continue with that though which is um obviously you can use um language to denote difference if you're trying to like show that places are different in some way um, you can use obviously you can be can be done with architecture and stuff as we've mentioned but you can you can help that with language potentially um as i was saying earlier i don't think this happens that much in games uh probably because of the practical reason of you need to understand what people are saying uh because there's a story happening or yeah you're or i don't know for if you're playing a stealth game you need to understand what the people are saying to each other about what they're doing and all this stuff so yeah don't think it happens that much well the way that is often done in games i think is the way that it's done in a lot of um a lot of fantasy uh the way that you'll see it done and it carries through to games is uh you do it within english but with different accents Mm, um yeah. so uh the lovely example i guess would be in uh the witcher 3 shout out to the witcher 3 haven't mentioned it yet today um <laughs> witcher 3 um the bloody baron uh he's the character who is uh a he's a military commander uh he's not like a proper n- member of the nobility but he's taken over this particular swathe of land which has been uh sort of gone over by war um and the bloody baron speaks with a Birmingham accent. Um, 
And and this is doing the thing that is typically done within uh, sort of fantasy texts where you use different English accents. You actually use the class associations that they have within the English speaking context in order to demarcate things to do with uh, class and social status. So the bloody bar- baron with his Birmingham accent, um, the Birmingham accent is, um, and apologies to any listeners in, in Birmingham, uh, this is, it's, it's not a secret, it's not, it's not considered a particularly prestigious accent within the UK. I watched a, uh, a little short film on um, YouTube with people speaking in, in, in Brummie uh, accents and a few of the people where they're talking about their accents said they don't like their own accent, um, which I think is a, a real shame, but I can absolutely uh, empathise. I don't like mine either. Um, but yeah, within the UK, Birmingham, accents are considered to be uh not sophisticated not high class you know um let's just let's just let's say how it is they they've heard it before they've there, heard there's, it before. Connota- there's connotations which we are not endorsing no. of uh stupidity yeah 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 uh, it's considered an ugly it's considered uh, to be an, an ugly accent which i think is it I think that's a real shame. I personally think the Birmingham accent is actually really lovely. It has a really specific musicality that you don't get uh, with, with other accents. But uh, but yes, it's, uh, what The Witcher 3 is doing is, is using all of those associations in a way that loads of fantasy texts do. Uh, the same as the Starks in Game of Thrones. You know, uh, they have sort of northern sort of Sheffield accents um, that kind of, uh, again, places them in a particular way within that world. Um, and the Bloody Baron makes sense, basically, as the idea of the guy who's kind of taken over over the swamps of Velen, uh, somewhere that you... Oh, yeah, yeah, it tells you, you're right. I hadn't thought of that at all, but it tells you so much, doesn't yeah. it? Like you say, the idea that he's in charge, but he's very much not a noble. Yes. And, and like I so said, the, the, the area, it's like swamps, and mm. like, it's not like... It's not somewhere you'd want to rule, particularly, like the bloody... No. That, that, that he's taken over, and it's, yeah, it's kind of way out there. And you compare it with, obviously, the, the emperor of Nilfgaard, who's played by Charles Dance, with his ridiculous received pronunciation... Mm perfect diction uh you know which again particularly with posh english accents that that's going to be a way of 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 demarcating class you wouldn't use charles dance for anyone other than the emperor within that world because it just it it wouldn't really you're getting all that information from it so you, Mm. you don't need to tell the tell the reader or tell the player much more um the other example i i thought of within games uh were the pagan faction within Thief Deadly Shadows, uh, not by all accounts the best Thief game, but the only one I have played. I enjoy it very much. Um, and the Pagans are a particular group within the city and they speak English, but it's like it's like a dialect. It's a, it's mm. a really sort of um, corrupted kind of form of English. Um, so they call the they call their god like the Woodsy Lord, and they call thief uh, when they're talking about the thief sneaking around. They call him Sneaksies and stuff like that. <laughs> and it's like they talk like children basically, and like, yeah. it, it it certainly gives you quite a, a fleshing out of the idea of this faction that they are in some way sort of primitive less less um technological than other people within the thief world you know that 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 childlikeness of them and, and perhaps dangerous and and treacherous as well in the way that children can be <laughs> yeah so there we go language is used uh but only with, to do this just in a different way yeah, yeah within english within like one language yeah yeah one other way that this happens uh is of course that games are literally translated from other languages 
Um, just one example that I thought of that shows how weird this can be sometimes is the Ace Attorney series. Right. Um, which I don't know how familiar you, you are. I've, with. I've seen the screenshots. I've never, never played. Okay. So yeah, an investigative series where you play a lawyer and you do little investigative bits and then you're in the courtroom and you have to kind of break down witness statements with evidence. Sounds uh, great. Yeah. Very, yeah, I like them a lot. Uh, very bizarre. Uh, an eccentric game series, mm-hmm. but they they are all. So it's a Japanese series. They're clearly it's clearly set in Japan. Um, the buildings and stuff have. Uh, I'm pretty sure a lot of the buildings with the signs and stuff are written in Japanese. Yeah, just you're you're very obviously in Japan. These are clearly Japanese people in a Japanese country. But for the Western release, they've like made it like. America. Okay. But you're clearly not in America. So they've tried to it's really hard to explain. Like it feels really weird. Like you you're you're constantly unsure like where you're supposed to like where the game thinks you're supposed to be. <laughs> right. So they they've tried to translate some of the as it happens, like they've tried to translate some of the like idioms and jokes mm. so that they make sense, which sometimes comes across in a completely bizarre way, mm. which often happens with uh, translations and it's just yeah a really unusual way of especially because they then have um like games where uh games in the series where like he goes to china so then you are abroad but like he's come from an original where he's japanese going abroad but then it's been translated as if you're in america and you've gone there so yeah it's it's odd right so yeah i just thought it was worth bringing up that subject um, with language and culture, um, I was reminded by uh, Erisephalus of Metal Gear Solid Five, which uh, has a story which uh, they themselves also said was not they didn't, didn't particularly like uh, the way that this concept was implemented. But it's a cool concept, I think. Uh, yeah, Metal Gear Solid Five, not uh, perhaps some yeah pr- perhaps one of the least coherent Metal Gear Solids, which is saying something. Wow, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I had to I had to dive into the Metal Gear Solid Five wiki for a refresher on this because it's um, Metal Gear Solid. But um, yeah, basically, so we have a character called Skullface, nice. uh, good Metal Gear Solid name. Who um, he? There's a one of the secret organizations in Metal Gear Solid is called Cipher, and they have a plan to kind of unite the world for world peace. And Skullface considers this as being the same thing as making the world culturally American. Right. So that they will uh, obliterate other cultures, basically. He was born in Transylvania and he lost his original language. Um, This was to do with the country being occupied multiple times by multiple people and his language kind of being... Uh, like beating him out of him almost. He has the classic MGS um, Metal Gear Solid tragic villain backstory. His face is all like burned and stuff from getting like trampled and chemical burns and stuff like that mm. but um yeah his losing his language is a part of who he is and he's he plans to release a uh, a vocal cord parasite that uh, specifically targets uh, anyone who speaks so people get infected with this but it would only uh, impact you when you speak english mental and then once you speak english it will kill you um so this is kind of his revenge for losing his cultural identity wow and he uh he interprets english as being a uh, a parasitic lingua franca that serves to subjugate and dis- 
destroy other cultures and their respective languages. I'm reading this from the from the wiki. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, this is uh, I think a cool uh, way of like looking at this subject yeah. because of course language has been and is used this way. Uh, particularly in colonial projects. Yeah. So, for example, in Ireland, cities were renamed as part of the way that you attack uh, a culture that you're trying to subjugate. Mm. Uh, in uh, Obviously, in India and stuff, like English, being able to speak English would carry with it a certain advantage where obviously you're trying to, like if you can make the population have to speak English to hold any sort of power, that's a way of kind of enforcing your domination of people. So it taps nicely into the the way language can be used uh, in this way, I think, the way it can be, the, the, its importance to culture and the way it can be used as a tool of domination. I think it's so, just so fascinating that it, um, yeah, that a game has kind of foregrounded language in that way because language is so often invisible and so often not something that's kind of, that we think about the kind of, uses of it and think about it as like a thing that is implicated in um mm. in cultural projects of of domination relations of um subjugation uh that's very cool well done metal gear solid one more thing on metal gear solid uh that a couple of people pointed out as just a very specific but cool example of of how language is being used uh, a much memed phrase and mocked uh, in some case there's a, a group referred to in Metal Gear Solid as the La Li Lu Lay Lo La Li Lu Lay Lo the La Li Lu Lay Lo goodness yes so it's basically a code word for, for the patriots who are one of the, the secret groups um, I'm just get, so I was looking into this because a couple of people mentioned it and I couldn't remember like what the significance of it was mm. I found this uh, Reddit post posted by somebody called Flash Medallion. So I'm just going to read this verbatim because it's easier than me trying to explain it. So the Japanese alphabet is recited like kaki, kuke, ko, tati, tute, to, and so on. But in Japanese, there is no distinguished L consonant, as I'm sure many people are familiar with. So what this actually means is that the Patriots, as a secretive organisation, are hiding in the very blind spots of language itself. It's bringing the idea of censorship into focus within the context of the game's discussion on memes and memetic engineering, language being the most important meme in human development. How can you pass on your ideas about something you can't even name? For the English-speaking characters, they can't warn anyone about the patriots, discuss them or expose them because they can't even say the words the patriots. Their nanomachines scramble the words in their mouths and it comes out as this gibberish. Um, yeah, Rosie, uh, people having nano machines in them is a big thing in Metal Gear Solid. So I would, uh, in this case... Okay, uh, yeah, I'd absolutely assume that was the case. literally can't... Yeah, people literally can't say it. <laughs> okay. They can't speak the name. Um, for the Japanese-speaking audience, this goes even further because the code word exists outside their language. They cannot even correctly pronounce Lalilulelo, nor write it with the alphabet. The Patriots are practicing a form of mimetic stealth. They are an idea that has an assumed form that cannot be expressed, communicated or reproduced. As to why this is relevant, compare this to, let's say, the current state of the Australian government who have outlawed anything related to whistleblowing. How can corruption be exposed when pointing to it as outside the boundaries of legal discourse? Government corruption now occupies mimetic blind spot and can proceed unchecked. So the Lully Lule Low routine is another way that Metal Gear explores the supremacy of stealth. You are most able to achieve your goals when no one even knows that you or your goals exist. How can you defend against something you can't even perceive? So I think that's a very, very cool yeah. uh, 
uh, idea. I did not know about the kind of, or had not thought about the significance of uh, that phrase in Japanese. Um, so yeah, props to Hideo Kojima for that one, I guess. It's just this weird thing with Metal Gear, having only played the first one, but I do get the impression that it has this like strange kind of lurching between ideas that are really kind of sophisticated and 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 smart and and original like original thinking mm, and yeah, yeah. um and just like this kind of nuts kind of um american <laughs> american pie level kind of comedy about boobs uh yeah. it's, it's a it's a fun vibe i mean it's uh, yeah the originality of it i think is really striking yeah but we we had some fun delving into that uh, uh contradiction didn't we we had the, some um, laughs game club <laughs> Yeah. series yeah uh there's one thing i'm surprised i didn't get more from this on in your notes rosie because i thought this would be this would be a uh, ideal territory for you but um, i thought about the tradition of uh magic right. and language and the relationship to reading so i think uh you you maybe know more there's kind of um an I a tradition of like linking linking reading and language with magic mm. because a magic would have seen uh, because that would have seemed magical to people who couldn't read like when literacy was far less common and being able to read conferred you with a kind of power that other people didn't have um i think that's right it's absolutely the, the case i mean for for large parts of history um the only way that you would learn language in a lot of uh, or writing in a lot of cultures has been by joining the uh, priestly caste whatever they happen to be whether it's a monk in medieval europe or whatever else yeah and uh, so this is um ex- uh, this is often uh, comes up in games in terms of like having an ability to read or interpret magical language mm-hmm. So um, I thought of uh, Avenham, which Yay! you had me play the game club, uh, where you can't read like the scrolls if you don't have, or they can't interpret the magical scrolls if you don't have a high enough level mm. within that area. Um, and again, I, I can't believe you didn't have, have this one, Rosie. Um, the old chance to shoot one in the Elder Scrolls. Uh, linking the idea of like language and power is of course skyrim where the spells are like literally like spoken they're uh yeah magic words where you like say a wind word that blows people about and i I guess it it kind of turns because the you are like a chosen one in that game i guess this 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 ties in with the idea of uh you you mentioned this right at the beginning about like creating fictions Mm. um and if you have power then you can like create reality when you speak, uh, which is kind of what's happening with this chosen one. But if we think of like, yeah, we can all try and create fictions with like by using language. But if you are a king, for example, your your ability to actually make reality manifest by speaking is uh, far greater. And you, you, yeah, you can make something so by saying it. Absolutely, yeah. If you're a king, you can shout, "Kill him." And someone might actually die. Uh, whereas, I, you know, if I shout kill him, just in general, <laughs> walking down yeah. the street, looking at someone, is, you know, nothing, nothing's going to happen, unfortunately. So it just jumped into my head. Uh, control. Uh, oh, yeah. Jessie Faden, um, when she's the director, she notes that she refers to the enemies as the hiss mm. and everybody instantly adopts the term. And she, was, and she kind of comments on it. She kind of says like, Oh, okay. Because I've said it 
I'm the director and because I've said it, it is now so. Like she makes a specific comment about it. I, um, I recall that now, actually. I didn't really notice it at the time, but you're absolutely right. She's like, oh, I guess we're all calling it The Hiss now. Um, and then something about being a director. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, I think that gets one of the things the Games was concerned with to me. I remember noticing at the time that she was kind of noticing that she now that she had this power, she could like make things just by saying them. Mm, mm, call yeah. things into reality. Um <laughs> Well, it, I mean, I guess it's talking about the kind of powers of language that inhere within kind of religious and magical traditions. Um, the game that I kind of came to and settled on is a really lovely thinking about how language might feature in uh, these kinds of uh, communications with something higher is Journey. And Journey does it through silence. Uh, have you played Journey, Paul? Mm -hmm. What a beautiful game. Absolutely incredible. Um, That came out in 2012. It's by That Game Company. Um, And it's a game without any spoken language in it, or indeed um, written language, I think, outside of, you know, a little bit of instruction maybe at the very beginning. Um, But uh, you play a character. The game communicates to you very, very clearly at the very outset, what what you're doing. You see your character, you see the character is looking at something, you swing around, there's a mountain, the character is in line and they're gazing at the mountain and the title is Journey. You've got to get up the mountain. It's obviously mm. some kind of pilgrimage. Um, it There are sort of r- religious tones in the kind of... Uh, uh, the dress of your characters. There's this like a robe, you know. Um, it feels like it's some kind of um, devout action getting to the top of this mountain. Mm. And as you play, the really lovely thing that people talk about is that you encounter other players who are also on the same journey and you can't really communicate with them outside of um, you press a button and a glyph that you don't recognize comes up on the screen and there's like a chirping noise. And that's it. You have one button, one glyph, uh, one chirping noise that you can make. But as you encounter other characters, depending on where you are in the journey and depending on like what you're trying to do when you see them, you might you might press the button to mean hello. You might mean thank you if they show you how to do a particular bit. Um, you might mean goodbye. You might mean help. You might mean, you know, where are you? Come this way. Come this way. Exactly that. Mm. And And you don't it almost feels like you don't need more than that button, than that, just that, that it's the idea of communication mm. almost shorn of semantic content, uh, like a pure communication that's happening without even any meaning. Um, mm. Or it's like a meeting of, 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 of minds or a meeting on some kind of deep level. And it, it was really interesting to me that um, a lot of reviews, when you read about journey, talk about this as a kind of religious thing. And actually that's exactly how the developer um, Genova Chen talks about it he spoke speaks about himself as um uh, a very spiritual person and within the game he was trying to create what he describes as a church experience um and Mm -hmm. this is the idea of some mode of communication that is not that can actually bypass barriers that come into place the kinds of barriers we've been talking about to do with um you know class position uh nationality uh gender race you know all of these kinds of things that the 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 vast differences in status between ourselves and what we imagine as supernatural beings um and and the the kind of overcoming of it can be represented by by putting on on the screen 
um, a language that means absolutely nothing to anyone playing the game apart from, you know, what they're sort of imagining within themselves as they say it. And it's a it's a really, really lovely example of, um, yeah, just sort of this trying to create a pure kind of communication that actually sort of almost bypasses the need for meaning at all. Uh, a lovely, lovely game and uh, uh, just a fantastic achievement, I think, Journey. Nice. Mm. Okay, um, just to, as always, to, to uh, end, we've got uh, a couple of suggestions that we had. Um, we're going quite long, so we'll, we'll just run for a couple quickly. So, um, so um, Dante suggested uh, the Demon Translation program from Shin Megami Tensei. So, uh, they said Demon Translation program from SMT and how all the demon groups have different speech patterns that alter what the best replies are plus certain types that can't be talked to or can only be talked to during a full moon. Uh, this sounds <laughs> exquisite. I didn't understand most of that, but the idea of something called Demon Translation Programme and also beings that can only be communicated with during a full moon, which I would actually like to put on on my on my specifications for the ways that people can address me. Um, <laughs> I, I love that. That sounds fantastic. What a good time. Yeah, I haven't played Shin Megami Tensei, but pers- uh, I don't—I don't know if you're aware, but that's the game from which Persona is a spin-off. Oh, really? Um, no, I didn't know that. You might—you might remember you can in Persona Five, you can talk to some of the like. There's a bit where you can like talk to creatures yeah. and like try and if you choose the right replies, you can like convince them to join you. So yes. I guess that's a spin-off of this thing he's uh, that they're talking about. Uh, but yeah, How I haven't cool. played Shin Megami Tensei. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's also mention Codele mentioned World of Warcraft, um, where the Horde and Alliance messages look like gibberish to each other. Uh, I haven't played World of Warcraft, but I'm aware that there's a two uh, factions, and I guess yeah, as far as I understand, like obviously when you're typing in the chat, they've basically coded it so that you can't um, yeah understand what the other side is saying or something like that. That sounds is... cool. Yeah, I've never played World of Warcraft myself. I was aware that there's like I really like just the idea of like a huge sort of fantasy universe with two factions in it, and you can like side with one or the other. I did not realize mm. that language got involved in that, and I think that's very cool. Yeah. Okay, so that's language. That's it. Yeah. Hope you've enjoyed it, listeners. Uh, as always, if you uh, want to send us any suggestions for uh, for stuff we've, we've we might have missed or not covered, then tweet us at getobjectpod on Twitter, and same for the email getobjectpod at gmail Please give us some more of those lovely um, five star reviews. That'd be wonderful. Uh, don't forget to start your cult. Please get on with it, guys. A disturbing lack of cult activity over the last couple of weeks, but I assume you're all just, you know, writing up your pamphlets. I mean, it can take some time to get these things off the ground. I understand uh, that. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Uh, and yeah, if you want to hear some more stuff from us, some of the things we mentioned on Metal Gear Game Club series, um, Eli's favourite game of all time, Edith Finch, right. which will be coming up there as well. Uh, and our video stuff, then go to patreon.com slash getobject. We'll be continuing to, to post uh, more stuff there. Yeah. Okay, so that is us for now. We do hope you will join us next time where we will be talking about what, Paul? 
Home. Home. Exactly. Domiciles. The kind of place where you might want to lay your head or not. Who knows? There's lots of them in games. So that's what we'll be doing. Um, there's no place like it, of course. Uh, and we will be uh, coming back for that uh, next time. We do hope that you will join us. Oh, oh it might, might be a little bit longer than normal for the next one uh, I loved, to come out, right? Of course, yeah, because we are, yeah, we're in the summer season and everyone's busy. They've got holidays, bits and bobs going on. Um, but we will be back after a, a short break. So yes, please come home to us. Uh, it will be a homecoming, etc. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll have all of the puns lined up and ready to go. Um, okay. uh, but yes, we do hope you'll return. And that's us for now. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Goodbye. Bye.